Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. Before we get started, I need to shout out my patrons. Thank you to Callum, Robert, Matthew, Jay, Paul, Tavernot, Carol, Benjamin, Fernando, Justin, Matt, and RPG Match. Thanks a ton to each of you for supporting the show and making this all possible. You can also help support the show by sending me a couple of dollars via Coffee or PayPal as a tip, or by making a purchase using my affiliate links. They're all within my link tree in the episode notes. Some of them even come with sweet discounts. I have links from DMs Guild, DriveThruRPG, Hero Forge, Adventure Dice, and 1985 Games. So if you're looking for adventures, minis, dice, or game pieces to help bring your game night to the next level, I've got you covered. Also, take the opportunity to check out the new charity I'm super proud to support, Diversity Saves. They're gathering funds and planning their first round of grants to creators now and need all the help they can get. So if you want to help some underserved creators who are making awesome TTRPG products, get their first project up and off the ground and started, consider donating now. And now, onto this episode's guest intro. Jay, known by one of his character names, Lord Gazumba, is a DM who has been running the same Greyhawk game for more than 43 years now. He started streaming his games within the last few years and has drawn some incredible names to his tables, raised thousands of dollars for awesome charities, and helped a new generation of gamers fall in love with the Greyhawk setting. Enjoy! My name is Jay Scott. A lot of people know me as Lord Gazumba. That is a character in my campaign. I've been playing D&D with my friends since 1978. So when I was 11, 12 years old, and we started our campaign in 1980. So it's been a long ride. How it started, I think I saw at a discount store a Holmes Basic box set. I think that was it. I was like, oh, this looks interesting and different. Picked it up, and then we started playing that one summer basic D&D, and then eventually the AD&D initial books came out, and we got into that, and then the World of Greyhawk Folio, which that changed everything, came out in uh, 1980, and we stayed with that campaign, and we're still running it. That's so cool. I'm not going to tell you how much older you are than me, but you were definitely playing before I was born, so I'll give you that benchmark. (laughs) Well, at least I don't think I'm as old as I look. No, and honestly, I know a lot of people who are into games and are into using their imagination, and they're the youngest people at heart, for sure. They're the ones who uh, have the longevity. You picked up the AD&D rules in 1980, the Greyhawk Folio. That's when you started the game that you've been running now. Was that the first time you had started running games, or had you done it a little bit beforehand before you jumped in into this current game? So on that home basic box set, you had the Keep on the Borderlands. Who knows how many times we played that over and over. We didn't know what we were doing back then. Those are the errors of the Monty Hall gaming, if you ever heard that terminology, where anything goes and you're really not sure what you're doing with the rules and you're 11, 12 years old, but we had a lot of fun with it. But the true campaign that we started came in 1980. Wow, we had a setting. We had the Darlene map. We had the Free City Greyhawk on the map. We had all these different countries, all these different interesting locations and these mountains, Lord Mill Mountains and these seas. It was just different change at that point. If you ever seen the Darlene map, there's like nothing on it. Each of those hexes is 30 miles. There's like nothing really in those areas. And Gary Gygax always said, make Greyhawk your own. That's exactly what I did. And that started at an early age. And for some bizarre reason, 
when I ran an adventure, I started writing down each adventure. So I started number one, Battle of Outpost one. There you go. And I've been doing that to this day. So that's how I know how many adventures I've run and all the ones I've done in the campaign. So you have all those paper records. Have you ever digitized them? No. <laughs> I got everything booked. All my custom rules. When Microsoft Access came out, we started trying to database the spell list. I'm like, this is not, not going to work. It's just there's too <laughs> much. And we're constantly adding. It's just now. Now I have some character sheets on PDF and there's a lot of stuff in files. It would take years for me to digitize it. It just would. So Yeah, to scan it all. Yeah, probably. Scan it all and just file it. I share a lot of my information on shows and with uh, PDF files or Word docs or Excel spreadsheets of data people want. Other than your current campaign, then your AD&D campaign, have you played any other tabletop games that you enjoy? Our second go-to game, and in fact, uh, I actually run it a little bit live stream. We play MechWare Battletech sci-fi. So I love that game, and we play it a couple times a year. My guys would like to do it a little bit more. So we run that here and there. The tabletop is set perfectly for it. And there's a couple other ones. I've played a couple Call of Cthulhu games. A little different. I love the people of Chaosium, but that's uh, a little out of my wheelhouse, but I'll play. I played one at GaryCon. I live-streamed one. One of the uh, Chaosium execs actually DM'd it. it was a game master that I should say DM for them. There's a game from the 80s. It's called Aftermath, and that's like post-apocalyptic. Kind of in the realm of Twilight 2000, if you remember that game. Not as much as Shadowrun, where that's more like a cyberpunk feel, but um, it was definitely Road Warrior-ish, if you understand what I'm saying from the movie. Yeah, I've seen all the Mad Max films, so that I get that reference. <laughs> yeah, but um, D&D all the way, old school, one, first edition, second edition. A lot of customizations, but no 5e for me. No 4 or 5. You haven't touched them. Okay, interesting. How many of those polos do you have with your crest on there? Oh, how many different colors? Yeah, because I've seen a few. <laughs> Four colors. These are a much nicer material than the previous generation. So I got the lime green, this blue, the dark green, and the violet right now. You could probably see them in the stack back there. I do yeah. give them out to certain people and uh, sell them occasionally. Got to represent. And it looks comfy, too. It's like a golf polo, right? Kind of that wicking material. Absolutely. And people are like, collared shirt. What are you, old? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. My dad wore one every day to work, right? I mean, he still works, but like, he always wore a button-up to work every day, and most of my coworkers are in T-shirts. It's just one of those things. The question I love asking people as part of this show is about mistakes you feel like you've made while running your games. We're going to lean on your wealth of experience here, and I'm sure you've got some good answers for us. I'd love to know, yeah, what are some of the big things you feel like you've done from behind the screen that were mistakes, whether specific instances or habits that you had or something that you had to break that you feel like you could teach us lessons from or that we could learn from? I just got to separate this out between DMing for a group and to live streaming a game. They're two separate things in its entirety. One thing that falls into both is speed of combat. We were getting to a point back in the day where one round was taking an hour. Gotta remember, my group's a little different than the groups like when my buddy Tim DMs as well, where we play two player characters. We figured if one character dies, you're not gonna be that worried. We've always done that, we've always played that style. Figuring out a way to speed up combat was something that always bothered me, and I think I got it down pretty good now. Group initiative we use. I don't know how you keep track of individual initiative in a theater of the mind game. It would just drive me crazy. 
I got like miniatures of 20, 30 uh, baddies out there, plus all the characters. And I do a positioning group in it instead of individual initiative. It just works so much better for miniatures play too. That was a big thing, finding out how to speed the game up. When it drags, people are saying they get transient. And that's really huge on a live stream. I do not want to take up three hours on one combat. Maybe three hours on two combats, but not on one. What about for streaming then? The number one thing a D&D stream needs to do to get people to want to watch is get them involved somehow. Get the viewing audience involved. And we've done that with our cheering system. People can do cheers based on points they get or on a dollar cheer amount. And it provides hero points to the players. And then just with a certain sponsored giveaways that are related to the game we're playing. I think that's important. Your audience is there and they're taking their time to watch you. Let's be bluntly honest. Who wants to watch a bunch of 50 plus year old old white guys sitting around a table? Right? I mean, it's myself and four of my friends. And we're just... Some of them are crotchety. Some of them could be miserable. They had a bad day at work. I got to figure out a way to make it entertaining in our game. I think we've done that. I think we've been able to uh, entice people to watch and participate and be vested in the characters and the game. Yeah, I think that's great advice, especially the audience aspect of it, right? Even if it's a, a podcast or whatever, unless people care about what's happening and care about the characters and care about whatever's going on, they can take it or leave it. Like, I'd much rather just go do something else. But when you care about the story, you care about the characters, you care about the result of the combat or, you know, whatever goal they're working toward, then they're much more likely to be invested in it. I think that's great advice. People want to support those that they like personally. So I'm going to be genuine. I'm going to tell it like it is. I'm just going to, hey, I made a mistake. Be honest. I think that goes a long way. Plus, you got to develop a community. People can definitely tell if you're being yourself or not. I know you got to put on a little bit of an act for the stream just because that's kind of the nature of it, but they're going to come because they care about you and they care about what you're doing. When we started, and it's almost been five years, when we started streaming, two of my players are like, what are you doing? No one's going to watch this. <laughs> Why would they watch? And I'm like, trust me, we have a niche. We're old school. We run Greyhawk content and we have the best miniatures and terrain that there is in a D&D stream period on Twitch. It's definitely a good niche. I feel like a lot of people, even if they're new to the game, are going to be interested in the roots of the game and be interested in what you're doing, right? As well as there's tons of people out there who got started playing AD&D and then have moved on to other editions or whatever, but remember playing in Greyhawk and remember this kind of stuff. And I'm sure it's a lot of fun for them too. And we always say in our community for Greyhawk, and this is a point I always stress because we have a lot of community events. The addition you play or the game system doesn't matter. It's a setting. So we have 1E, 2E, a lot of 3Es, a lot of Pathfinders, a lot of 5Ers, a lot of Castles and Crusades players, all playing in Greyhawk. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be an old school 1E, 2E player to play in a Greyhawk game. So lots of different additions. Are there resources out there if people wanted to play in Greyhawk for all those different games like Pathfinder? Yeah. Definitely. There's a lot of sites that have done conversions over to those editions. There's a lot of publications out there, and most of them are fan-done content, so they're free. You just got to know where to go. That's one of the things of the community. We have multiple discords amongst a couple different sites, and there's always someone on there who knows where to find the right thing. Legally. Right. Discords are good for that. You can hop in and pose a question, and usually somebody knows the answer, which is nice. 
You mentioned you've got a lot of homebrew rules and spells and stuff that you're adding. It sounds like you've got a lot, but are there any particular homebrew rules or things that you've created that you're super proud of or that are really fun? So on a grand scale, I have an entire city in Greyhawk, the free city of Altamira. And the great thing about that is Cholar Games likes it so much, we're going to publish it shortly. The Kickstarter for that will probably be at the end of the summer. They have a lot of other more pressing things going on, which we all know about. We don't even talk about that now. Stripping things out, yeah, but that's going on. I've created a lot of custom classes. When we first got the original Player's Handbook First Edition, and even when Arthur Kana came out, they were like, there's just not enough classes. And uh, I always go back to a friend of mine. I'm not sure if you know who he is. Leonard Lakafka. He wrote Secret of Bone Hill, L1, L2 ton of publications but he was so funny he would just show up right in the middle of one of my talk shows unannounced <laughs> len's a legend i mean we're talking about like gary gaga's level like greenwood and with leonard he would write a bunch of articles for dragon magazine early in the day and the first one that we picked up was he made a class the archer and to this day we use his archer class with a couple minor tweaks in it the death masters in our class is and then there's a lot of other great content out there. You just got to know where to find it. So I've used a lot of those supplemental classes, plus a lot of homebrew classes, plus I take ideas from my players. My buddy Bill, I have to change the name of this one going forward at some point, but he made a maester from the Game of Thrones maester. That's a great supplemental class we have in our game. Yeah, someone who's done a ton of studying and knows a little bit of medicine, a little bit of history, a little bit of like the world. That's a cool idea. And we've made that a multi-class option with the base classes. You can have a fighter slash maester, magic user slash. It works really well for our game. They got all different skills, alchemy, armoring. They can learn musical instruments and all different sorts of things. It's a really neat class he wrote up. With that, I'm really proud of what we've developed over 43 years. My uh, partner, Crime Anna Meyer, who's on all my talk shows, says it's not 1E, 2E, it's 1.J rules, because it's a lot of customization, right? I'm looking right here at the list. I don't know. It's like 46 base classes we have now in the 1E, 2E game. And f- with inside that, the specialty priest, I have 43 different specialty priests within that one class. It's a lot of variety. I like the RP aspect to come out of the class, if that makes sense. There's so many great deities that are polished in Greyhawk, like Dratharian, Heronius. Each of them have their own priest. Within that, you know it's that class. You know it's a priest of Tritharian, the god of justice and revenge. It's got a good deity. You'll know it in Greyhawk. That's why I love the flavor of Greyhawk is stuff like that. That's really cool. Those are uh, good ideas. It's given me ideas for my own games. It'd be fun to have like a maester type. Customization, there's nothing wrong with it at all. There's a lot of books out on it, and no matter what edition you're playing, Coming up with some of your own ideas, it's a good thing. I definitely try to homebrew. I haven't homebrewed like classes specifically because usually my players kind of just settle on one that they like, but I've definitely homebrewed like abilities later on or stuff like that because I find that it's a lot of fun and it lets them further customize what they want to do instead of kind of being stuck with whatever's been published. Out of the 43 years you've been running this specific game, do you have one or two favorite memories of really epic things that have happened or special things that have happened that you all still talk about? I believe in the long-term campaign plot arc. Now, we have like 26 different adventuring groups, and it's a lot to keep track of. Every two years, I say, we're not doing first levels again, ever. And then two years later, we do it again. We start a new group, and it's all in the same world, though. This long-term campaign plot almost is like started the way Frodo finds the ring, just lying there, right? And he comes across it. So in this adventure, second, third level, this has got to be going back to the 90s. 
My buddy builds characters, Salem Shadow Moon. He's a cleric necromancer, half elf. Chaotic neutral, scared of everything. Underground little pond, little pool, and in the sand he sees this crown. He's drawn to this crown. Well, this is the crown of a megalomaniac, Tulsa Doom style character from the Karen Hills that I created called Ruggiero Blood Moon. Over 20 years, they find these gem sockets for it, and they find all these things for it. They hide it away because they know he wants to get a hold of it. And then one day, a group of evil people, that the secret cult of his, who's still trying to bring him back, they steal it and they put it on Salem's head. It becomes this megalomaniac, and they go and he starts killing people and having them jump off buildings because it's power of mind. And it was just a great campaign arc. It just was fantastic. It was 22 years, that whole storyline, as other things were going on in the campaign. And finally, they killed him, and they got it off his head, and they still can't figure out how to destroy the crown to this day. So they're keeping it secret where it's hidden now. So yeah. So they were just carrying it with them and like slowly adding the gems. Yeah, and then eventually they're like, you know what? We got to get this away from him because we don't want him putting it on. He agreed. They put it away. There's a guild of night. They're called the Night Watchmen in Greyhawk City. They're like the secret service almost. You can hire them out. But once again, they got found out where it was, the uh, worshippers of Corel, and they got him to wear it, and it just all hell broke loose at that time. It was a great, fun adventure. I remember that. And unfortunately, it was well before the time of me streaming, well before the time of me taking pictures of the table. I have these fuzzy pictures of the combat going on on the table in the old house, and it just doesn't do it justice. But that's a good story. Going back so many years. Yeah, that was a fun time. And I got three to five campaign plots that are working and intertwined in now that are going on. One's been going on 15 years. So it's fun. That's what you got to do. You got to breathe life into the campaign. So long-term stories. That is fun. Do you feel like a fantasy author ever? You're just like writing all these books at the same time? I'm not very good at writing, though, and I'm finding out because I'm writing this box set, and uh, I'm really working on it. And that's the thing. We all have our homebrew dm code where we write down our chicken scratch on some paper and those yes. right and those stats yes. are ours yes and we know the plot behind the applied it we don't have to go into detail on it right and that's what i have in all these notebooks here so i got all these notebooks of all my adventures in them and only i know what it means half the time that's the thing but you can't take that and publish an adventure off this that's the great thing about being a dm too you write down as much detail as a dm as you need that's what I do. And the rest is up here. Yeah, it's good and bad. It is bad. That's why I'm so glad I logged adventures when I started all those years ago. But I didn't log what adventuring group was running in each adventure to about number 400. I'm doing my best guess on what character was in what, or if I go back into the notes of the adventure and find it, and then I can see who was in it. It's just just going all the way back in time. It's like slip sliding all the way. Yeah, because we're running like... I don't know. 986 is Thursday. Adventure 986 we start. And divide it by 43. It's like 45 a year. We're running weekly stuff. We figure we've been together for about 3,300 sessions. We have no idea how many, but that's the guess. Back in the days, when before we were married with kids and all, we were playing three times a week and playing all weekend, you know. Right, right, yeah. I got into the hobby after having been married, and so I'm sure it was way worse. I'm glad I didn't have this in college, though, because I probably wouldn't have graduated. <laughs> I would have been way too focused on it. And now, a word from How Not to DM's sponsors. Let's kick it off with the Thread of Souls. In the Thread of Souls Spider Octology, 
10 adventurers are caught in a web of deadly secrets, warring cults, and untrusting alliances when they meet a cult runaway seeking freedom. They must overcome their differences in order to stop a god's release from an abyssal prison. Check out Thread of Souls, the fantasy book series based on a TTRPG campaign by Scott and Ashley Ropel. Order your copy on Amazon today. The link will be in the episode notes for that book series. Last but not least, I want to give a shout out to podcasteditors.online and videoeditors.online. Podcasteditors.online is the group that edits this podcast, and they do an awesome job, as you can hear. They also do actual play podcasts or any other kind of podcast that you may have. So take a look at their website at their great rates and see if you are interested in buying some editing hours a la carte. And if you tell them I sent you, you might get a little discount on your first couple of hours there of your podcast. So check that out. Videoeditors.online, also very useful if you are a YouTube creator, if you have any kind of video content, TikTok or Reels, short form YouTube shorts, they do it all. So go check out videoeditors.online if you're a video creator and you want to take advantage of that too. So same deal if you want to mention How Not to DM sent you, I'm sure they'll hook you up with some discounted hours to start. So yeah, check those both out if you are a podcast or video creator or both. With all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's version of Quickfire Chaos. Welcome to Quickfire Chaos! This week on Quickfire Chaos, I'm going to generate some random plot hooks, and Jay is going to tell us where in Greyhawk he'd have this particular scene play out. So what I've done is I've got a random encounter generator, and I'm just going to like generate three encounters per each of the places. There's city and desert and forest, and then it's going to like give a little encounter seed, and then you tell me if you were to run this encounter, where would you put it in your world? And maybe like who would be some of the key characters that you'd weave into it? The first one is going to be a city encounter. And it says this, the party comes across two feuding nobles who have started a duel. Where in your version of Greyhawk might there be nobles who would be dueling and why might they be dueling? We'll go right to the free city of Altamira that I have. There are different varying levels of nobility, of course. I see that uh, in the Free City of Altamira, there's uh, the merchant clans. They all name them like Dutch and German names for some reason, like Von Poppen, Von Sch- whatever. Those, along with a lot of transplants from the Kingdom of Keeland who are relocated here, like the Rothschilds or the Winchesters, I can see both of them having some uh, issues with each other and a little bit of a bar brawl at the Violet-Eyed Lady, which is the most exclusive inn in all of the Free City of Altamira, named after Britomart Aradhel, a noble woman from Selene, an elf, supposedly the most beautiful elf in all of Selene. And I can see a duel breaking out there, and they don't like fighting there. But there will be fighting there actually coming up, too, during our fundraiser. Let's jump to the desert encounter. Here we go. The party comes across a merchant who is in possession of a rare, valuable desert plant. The players can choose to trade for the plant or try to find the source of the plant and collect it themselves. All right, so deserts, where might they be where they find this merchant who's got a plant that they're interested in? I see deserts as different types. You can have a sandy desert, or you can have a rocky, arid desert. So two places to come out, you have the bright desert, which is south of Harby and Greyhawk. 
there's a lot going on there. Rari the Traitor is still there. That could be a possible. There's a lot of um, clans, Bedouin types, I use that term, that are out in there. And this plant may have healing properties or it may have hallucinogenic properties, right? So it just depends which direction I would decide to go to. The other would be in the Cairn Hills itself, north of the Free City of Greyhawk. It's very arid, but maybe there's this plant that's in like a brush, a lichen or something that could be used for stopping bleeding on wounds that they want to get their hold on because the maester in our party wants to look and see if they can reproduce it. Last but not least, forest. As the party passes beneath a large oak that has grown over the road, a branch swoops down and snatches the backpack from one of your group. The tree proves vocally petulant when you attempt to retrieve it, tossing the bag from one branch to the other. So it's playing like keep away with the adventurer's stuff. Are there any magical plants, I guess, in your game? And if so, where might this be? Well, magical or monstrous too. True. Yeah, I guess this would be a monster. Right outside Altamira is the Sis Forest on the other side of the Jewel River. In fact, some of it encroaches on to the western side of the Jewel River. All up and down the area I play is heavily forested. The Sis Forest is one of the most vile, bog-ridden, worst places you could be. But if this is just a playful style treant or young sapling type, we could move it further north into the Elven Realms into the Welkwood or into the Gnarly Forest, where there's a lot of Sylvan Elves, and that this is just a tree. It could be a tree that's been animated by a druid who has a beef against the party for some reason, or it could be even done by some of the fairy folk as well, if it's not a tree in itself, like the leprechauns or brownies or whatever. A lot of them have the power over plants, or dryad even, too. It could be some fey magic. Yeah, I like that. Those were from dndspeak.com. If anyone's looking, they've got hundreds of lists and tools and stuff you can go and just generate random encounters if you're looking to give yourself some inspiration or you just didn't prep for the night or whatever it might be. That was fun. Yeah, it is fun. I try to do either role play or like something specific that the person is interested in and enjoys. And I think that you nailed that one. Thanks. Vast knowledge of your world. You mean, who would be more qualified than you to be the one to tell us? I appreciate that. I kind of consider myself the uh, Bill Murray, like in Groundhog Day. Well, I've done, you know, <laughs> so many times. It's just been so long. That's funny. We were just playing the first session of the uh, Salt Marsh. This is very, very light spoilers, but they find a guy named Ned in the haunted house they're supposed to be exploring in the very first adventure. And uh, someone made a joke that he should be Needlenose Ned from Groundhog Day. So they've been making Ned Ryerson jokes for the past few sessions now because of it. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's cool that you're doing Salt Marsh. I mean, you plan to go beyond that with Greyhawk? I think we'll see where it takes us, but after it's over, I think it ends at around level 12 or 13. And at that point, it would be fun to make the jump. So I'll definitely chat with them about it, but I think we could work something in. I think it'd be a lot of fun. I could create some villain from beyond the scope of the adventure specifically that's threatening maybe here and there. That area is rich with all sorts of ideas and plot hooks. Go to the West, that whole marsh. I could share some of them with you. It's not a, a hard leap beyond that. It's Hool Marsh, right? And then the woods are like... The Dreadwood. The Dreadwood is north. Dreadwood, it, that's right. The Dreadwood, Dreadwood, yeah. You have, according to your research, the longest running contiguous game of Dungeons & Dragons. In Greyhawk. Okay, sorry. In Greyhawk. Because my real good friend, the legend himself, Ed Greenwood, would say that his is longer. Okay? And I can't argue with Ed, right? So Ed says, you can have the U.S. record. Because he's Canadian, so right. he's, that's what he says. <laughs> so, yeah. I like that. 
now there's been people who picked up the glossography and played it since day one i'm assuming too but as far as i'm aware we have a themed based campaign that's contiguous from that point on from 1980 until now yes what do you think has lent to the longevity of this game I'm assuming most of your friends who've been playing it have at least stuck around geographically near you, or some of them have. What are some other things you feel like have led to being able to play in the same world for so long? I've been fortunate and blessed that my friends, even when they went away to college and I went away to college and stuff, we kind of still did things when we came back. But for the most part, I've tried to keep this refreshing and interesting. And uh, three of them have been once in 78 and two from 80 that still play. The one from 83, one from 86, and the rookies from 92. The rookie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, from that group. Just 31 years worth of being the rookie still. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to blow his head up, but he's the most vital one, Bill Master Crafter. He's the one that does all the painting and terrain making. He's the one that does all the great visuals for me. But um, the stories never get old in Greyhawk. There's always a different way to go somewhere the symbol on my shirt here is the Order of Ulick. It's an order of knights. It's a good aligned organization. And from day one, that's what the whole entire campaign's been based around. We'll go off the beaten path with some of the adventuring groups sometimes, have different theme groups, but that's where the main campaign goes. And it's unique to my campaign. It's made up. But in 1980, there's only one publication for Greyhawk, the Folio. So that was my challenge as years came out, more stuff came out. How do I incorporate it back in without messing up what I've done already? And that's been fun. I think I've done the right thing if my players still play after all these years. And plus, I'm kind of lucky to have some big names playing in my game now, too. And they keep coming back, too. So I must be doing something right. So (laughs) You must be. On that note, who are some of the people who you were super excited to play with that you've gotten to so far? Or maybe people that you wanted to play with that you've gotten to tick off that list? Let's start from the beginning there. Um, I played with Luke Gygax probably a dozen times, and he's great. And he has, in my campaign, if you know Melf, right? The caster Melf and the Melf spells, that's his character, Melf, male elf, M-E-L-F. That's how it came up. I said to him, well, we don't want to have Watsy come after us, so let's make the son of Melf up, and we'll call him Smelf. But now he made him a name, Eliator, but that's his nickname is Smelf. So I actually have the son of Melf in my campaign. Luke Gygax is one. Ed Greenwood, I mean, the founder of Forgotten Realms plays in my Greyhawk game every two months. It's insane. Eric Mona, who basically runs Paizo, and he's a big Greyhawk guy from day one. But all three of these people will be playing in my fundraiser game coming up in February. We cannot wait. I broke into Hollywood. I got the actor Todd Stashwick, who's played in my game. He's done a ton of things. Yeah, I had Todd on this show uh, earlier last year. Oh, maybe. cool. You did. Awesome. Yeah. I love Todd. I loved him in a few other shows that he's done. When I found out he played D&D. Yeah, exactly. When I found out he played D&D, I was like, well, I'm going to see if I can get Todd on the show. So yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, he'll be at GaryCon 2 coming up in March. We'll be hanging out. Yeah, he's a real good guy. And just some other wonderful people. There's so many. I'm blessed to have an all-female group that I DM for. And that's fun. The Slav Squad Squad. And there are a lot of streamers I put together. The Slav Squad? They name themselves. Everyone hates the name because it's nothing to do with Greyhawk, but I guess it's, that's a thing where the guys in the gym shorts get down and they make the squatting picture. So my friend Adam Meyer, she does a lot of heraldry work, and she made a heraldry shield where you have this jester-looking dude on the shield doing it for them. So they have their own heraldry with someone slob squatting on the shield. They made the name up. And then Ed's group's two-drink minimum, so you can figure where that one goes. A lot of debauchery in that group. 
And in that group, I have Tony Winslow Brill, Eric Boyd, who's a big name in Forgotten Realms, Eric Mengi, Anna Meyer, and then we have a lot of guests rotating through both groups. So they're the two special groups I have going on right now. That's incredible. Thank you. That's fun. I'm blessed to have this many people want to play. I'm honored that I'm able to do that for them. If someone had told you in 1980 that you would be doing this now, I'm sure you'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Definitely. Because, you know, Ed Greenwood is Elminster. I'd be like, you got Elminster playing your game? You didn't call him Edge. called him Elminster back then. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess so. It's surreal sometimes when you think about it. And they're all great people. They're all just normal. That's what I love about the D&D world. They're all just normal people. They like to have fun. They make jokes. Sometimes very crude ones, but that's okay. They're all wonderful people. I agree. Uh, I haven't met a person yet who I've either had on the show or who I've done something with that hasn't been just super friendly and accommodating and willing to do stuff like this. It's a really cool community. You started streaming a few years ago. Tell us about some of the fun stuff that you've been a part of since getting into streaming. Like You've mentioned you do charity games. You've mentioned a couple of conventions that you've done. Tell us more about those, how you got involved. When we first started, I said to the group, let's give back. This will be a good way to grow the community. So we had a fundraiser for St. Jude, and we titled it The Orbs of Dragonkind, which is a big thing in Greyhawk. It's always Greyhawk-themed. First year, we raised $1,000. This is five years ago. Second year, we did uh, Return of the Falcon, which is a nemesis in Greyhawk that appears in second edition. Raised about $2,000. Year three, I said, let's just double. It will go for four. And we raised um, 10000 that third year. Last year, I did one, There Will Be Dragons was the name of it. And uh, I had all these big names, like Larry Elmore, and he did it this year too. Larry Elmore gave me all these signed prints. It was just crazy. Thinking to myself, where are we going to get? Uh, we did $20,540 last year. And this wow. is three days of streams with like 12 channels participating over the three days with all the sponsor giveaways. So this year... February 17th and 19th, we have one called Legends. I want them to use legendary characters, places, locations, adventures, and legendary people are playing in it. As we said earlier, I got Luke, Eric Monal playing in my game for that one. It's going to be tough. And that's why I figured, how are we going to beat this number? It was crazy last year. But when COVID came out in 2020, it turned into GaryCon, which was the big con to honor Gary Gygax. It's always in March. It got canceled right when COVID came out that year. And they said, well, let's do this in virtual. In 10 days, can we put together a virtual con? And uh, I put together a whole stream channel set for it. I said to myself, we can do our own convention. There's no reason we can't. So I formed Virtual Greyhawk Con. I found a weekend that nothing else was going on. It's the first weekend in October. And we have a lot of community participation in that now. And we've done it three years. And this year will be Virtual Greyhawk Con 4. So we have our own convention, first weekend in October. That's taken a life of its own, too. I'm really happy about both. The fundraiser is like the big early of the beginning of the year event, and then Virtual Crowd Con is the end of the year event. And in between that, I can take vacations with my family and stuff in the summer without getting uh, divorced. So, yeah. But they're the two big things, along with all the other stuff going on. Good idea to spread those out. You've played a few other TTRPGs, but you mentioned you haven't really delved much into 4E5E. I'd love to know what lessons you feel like newer tabletop fans who are either just getting into it or maybe have gotten into it maybe in the last five years or so could learn from older editions of games or older campaign settings like Greyhawk, that kind of thing. Like, What should we be trying to glean from all of this history of the game? Keep an open mind. 
and I'm not bashing anyone here, but when I see all these comments on, well, all the grognards are just gatekeepers, that's the furthest thing from the truth. The grognards, it's a bad term anyway. I like the old schoolers better because I play an old school game style. Note, keep an open mind that 5e is a great system for getting into and playing. It's great for theater to the mind play and VTTs, but there's other systems out there you can play, irrespective of wherever you're setting, whatever you're homebrewing. Homebrew in any setting. Or you can run Greyhawk or Forgotten Realms or Dragonlance in any setting you want with any kind of system. Hey, 5e may be the perfect system for you, but it may not be. Be surprised how many people, and maybe it's just because of what we're doing, come on to my stream as their initial five years because that's all they know. And now they're playing old school essentials or they're playing Castles and Crusades from Troller Games. They do sponsor me. But people are doing things the way they're doing it for a reason. And I play the old school style basically because my rule set's almost custom as it is. It's not verbatim the player's handbook first edition. It's not. There's all sorts of things we've changed. And that's the thing. It's a DM. You can make changes to the rules. You can make tweaks. There's a difference between not knowing the rules, right? Which a lot of people are just saying, ah, the rules, I don't care, right? Hey, fine. You want to play that way, that's fine. But almost every game gets a a rule stickler player. You got to know how to work around that too, right? Just note that as a DM, you can tweak the rules no matter what's published. You don't want to do it for the sake of power over your players. You want to do it because it's going to enhance your game. You'll know if your game's good because your players will come back each week. When your players stop coming back, then you know you got a problem, a serious problem. But when your players come back each week, they're enjoying themselves. That's what the game's about. Making friends, and that's why I keep the politics out of my streams and my talk shows. I'll make some joke political commentary on like something, and it may connect to something Easter egg it to something in real life, but two people out of 500 get it, right? But I keep the political commentary out of my game. d and an escape. A lot of us have real jobs and we go and we work 40-hour work weeks and we want to be able to do this as a beloved hobby. That's what I do. So you've mentioned uh, a few plans you've got for future content. You're writing something you're going to be kickstarting later this year. You've got these conventions that you've got coming up. Anything else come to mind that you're working on or that you're going to be a part of soon? Well, a big thing is for us on the channel is the 1,000th adventure. I mean, we're at 986 now. (laughs) So I haven't projected out where I think it's going to happen. Sometime over the summer or late summer, I think, we're going to have our 1,000th adventure. And I got to plan that. And I have no idea what I'm going to do yet for it. How momentous it's got to be. That's a big thing. But as far as with Gary Khan and the fundraiser and Virtual Ground Khan, I'm going to attempt, and I go to PAX Unplugged because it's in Philadelphia. I don't live far from Philly, so I go to that. But I need to get to some more cons. Reaper Miniature sponsors me, and I have not been to a Reaper Con yet. I got to get to a Reaper Con. I hear it's fantastic. That's like on Labor Day weekend every year. I'd love to get to North Texas RPG. It's a very small, old-school con. I'd love to get to that one, too, and maybe a couple others, Game Hole Con. But then again, you got to balance real life against the uh, hobby. Yeah, I'm attending my first one this spring, but that's because it's local here in Utah. One of these days, I'll save up some money and maybe make a trip to a bigger one. But yeah, for now, local ones, that sounds great to me. It's a close drive. I can stay at home. And First time I ever DM'd at a con was 2018 in all those years at a PAX Unplugged in 2018. I DM'd for people I did not know. That was really the first time. I'm all signed up for a bunch of games. I'm doing a panel. I'm excited for the games and a little bit nervous, but I've had a lot of people giving me advice on not taking people's feedback too seriously and not worrying about it because you're never going to see them again if it goes poorly. So (laughs) 
Yeah. My advice to you is everything takes longer than you think. So if you have a four-hour window, for me, comfortably, two combats is all I'm going to be able to fit in that four-hour window. Beyond that, it's a stretch. So that's kind of the advice I can give you. And especially if someone else is coming to that table to play, it's almost like a stream, a one-shot and a live stream. You need to know, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, I'm going to try to keep it on rails as best I can, knowing that players will fight it. Hopefully they understand too. Like you said, it's a con. We're here to like play this game. That's kind of how it is with one shots and with streams. Like you want to get to the end, right? So work with me a little bit and hopefully they'll understand. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you'll have fun with it. It'll be a great experience. You'll be happy you did it. And you may get some more people to the community off of it too. That's another thing I'm hoping to do is connect with some people. I've got some friends locally who have other shows and we're going to hang out and that'll be fun. But yeah, it'll be fun to just kind of meet people who I've never met before who are into the same things as I am. Coming down to the end here, I'd love to know what your parting words of wisdom, encouragement, advice are for new and aspiring and old and crusty and uh, jaded DMs out there. Number one, you got to listen to your players. And I'm not talking about you got to give in all the time. There's two different things. But you want to listen. If there's something going on in your game that just doesn't work, it's okay to make the change. Even on the fly. And then say, look, we're going to test this or we're going to try this out tonight. I play test stuff constantly in my games. I'm saying, look, I'm going to be throwing out you a class I'm thinking about or some new spells. I'll play test right then and there just to see how things are going. Take the words that your players give to you and heed them. Also, take their ideas and implement them. A lot of my custom classes are from my friends and players. A lot of the spells they've created. You want them vested in the campaign setting. Another thing, this drives me insane, and I'm sorry, I'm going to get a soapbox here. Adventure paths are cool, but when that adventure path ends, that character, you don't have to be finished with that character. And I think this is like something got ingrained into 5e. You go from 1 to 12 or 1 to 20, and you're done, and you start something else up. What happened to them? That's an opportunity. There's nothing better than crossing groups, coming across each other in the bar, interacting with each other. That's how you build a living, breathing, fleshed out campaign. Don't like just end them and move on to something else. Utilize them. Go back to them. Bounce back and forth. I think that's a missed opportunity. A lot of DMs turning in from running adventures and adventure paths, which they call campaigns, but they're not. They're adventure paths, right? <laughs> right. Module. Yeah. Modules. Yeah. A campaign's an entire setting, right? Where you have. A lot of things going on in multiple different places. But yeah, utilize those groups. Don't say, oh, you know, that character's retired now. Well, what's the character doing? They open up an inn. They make their own mercenary group up with their own hirelings and their own lower level characters. Use those characters. Interact with the setting. And that's another thing I see. I'm like, ah. I also say that to a lot of streamers, too. This is not all in the family, right? Or the A team. <laughs> you don't have season. It should never end. And adventure ends, you go to the next one. I understand that's how it works in the world of acting and all, and there's compensation for a lot of them, but I'm playing with my friends. We're sitting around a table, and we're enjoying ourselves, and we're not super theatrical. I stream my friends playing at my table. That's what I stream. I don't stream six people up there all acting. That's not what we stream. So we stream the experience of playing D&D, which I think is more realistic to the majority of a lot of players at home. 
Yeah, as opposed to content for content's sake kind of thing. I know there's a ton of shows out there that do stream specifically. They're like, we're going to tell this story. I think Dimension 20 comes to mind. I don't know if you've ever watched any of the Dimension 20 stuff, but they like have eight episode, 10 episode arcs. It's just meant to like tell that story. Each of the characters kind of has a tie off at the end where they ride off into the sunset and then they go play a totally different thing. It's a different style of play, but I agree it doesn't really mirror real life play and most people's experiences. And the thing you want to do is you want to be relatable. And that's just what I'm saying here is I try to be relatable to people. And like I said, my style is not for everyone. It's not. I mean, my basement is filled with stuff that I could have been spending on putting in the C bill, uh, T-bills or whatever. I got so much terrain miniatures and stuff, but that's the beloved hobby aspect of it. And uh, it's just like anything. You want to do stuff that you love outside of the toil of real life. And that's what we do with D&D. Do you have a goal for how long you want to keep playing? I mean, there's no like, okay, once I hit 50 years, I'm going to stop. There's nothing like that for you, right? I've already hit that. So (laughs) we're going to keep playing until we can't do it anymore physically or mentally. So. Streaming has been fun, nice, and uh, maybe I'll do more of it when I retire from my job. I figure uh, I'm counting down the years now. I think I'm down to six before I'm like, I'm done, man. Nice. I'm done at 62. That's still a ways off, but uh, we'll continue. I want to get to 50. I want to have that big 5-0. Every year, if you notice my logo coming up, there's a year on it. I want to get to 50 years. So I got seven to go. That would be awesome to have a 50-year ongoing campaign. That'd be really impressive. That'd be really cool. Well, thanks. Thank you so much for joining us. To wrap things up, tell us a little bit about where they can find you, your streaming schedule if you have one, and then you can plug your upcoming charity streams and that kind of stuff too. So I'm at uh, twitch.tv backslash, and all one word, Lord Gazumba, G-O-S-U-M-B-A. I have a YouTube mirror, which is the same, but it's Lord with a space, then Gazumba. And by the way, he's the head of the Order of Ulick, triple-classed half-elf character going back from the early 80s, so that's where the name comes from. I have a talk show on Wednesday nights called Legends and Lore. That's at 8 p.m. Eastern, and we talk about Greyhawk topics. My game with my friends is on the next night, Thursday night, starts at 7.30, usually runs about 11 Eastern. Special event once a month on Friday nights, we have the Fantasy Mapping Show. That's with Alyssa Faden and Anna Meyer, and we go over all sorts of cartography on that show. Saturdays are set for special events, so once or twice a month, I have a special Saturday night game with either Ed Greenwood's Two Drink Minimum or the Slav Squad Squad or something else special going on. Sunday night's Gabin at Lord Peak's Haven. It's a bar in a city in the Greyhawk setting. We talk general topics, special guests come on, and that's Sunday nights at 7. The average is about three and a half streams a week. Three standard, and usually I throw in something special once or twice a week, so that's why I say three and a half. This week I have five. That's quite the schedule. I'm glad you were able to find time to chat. Oh, sure. I know you're busy. I remembered one other thing I was going to mention, and that is that uh, someone posted recently that the Darlene map of Greyhawk, she put the names of the mountain ranges in the mountains so she'd have to draw less mountains. I had Darlene on about a year and a half ago on Legends and Lore. Here's a cool thing. That calligraphy, her writing, that's my writing. If you notice on my script on my streams, it's called Greyhawk Gothic, and you can buy the rights to use it. It's really neat. But yeah, Darlene uh, did a lot. Man, what a legend she is. And that was all done with overlays and stuff. It wasn't digital back then. It was a tedious process to make that map. But yeah, just a wonderful thing. A lot of work on that, but it became iconic. It's absolutely iconic, that map. The last thing, uh, February 17th, 18th, and 19th is our fifth annual St. Jude fundraiser. 
there'll be a Tiltify link on my front page and it'll be all in all the streams. I'll have a stream schedule out and it'll start Friday morning. The only times I don't have filled is 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. We have stream content all three days, all the way through to Sunday night, all set with all sorts of great special guests and yeah, all great out content. The goal is to surpass $20,540. So if you're into supporting St. Jude, we'd appreciate it. I'm excited to see what that's about. I'm sure I'll be able to catch 10% of it. Weekends tend to be busy, but it's a great cause. And yeah, I'm really excited to see how much money you all can raise this year. Again, thanks, Jay, for coming on. I really appreciate it. I love learning from DMs of all sorts of different experience levels, and you are the most experienced. I won't comment further, but uh, congratulations on that uh, honor. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. And thank you so very much for your time here. I enjoyed chatting with you. It was a fun time. Ton of fun. Thank you for listening to How Not to DM. Now it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guest, Travis Vengroff, creator of Dark Dice and other amazing horror and TTRPG podcast projects. You know, before COVID, we were playing a lot of home games in our friend's basement, and at, in his basement, there's this pillow of Jeff Goldblum. And I'm like, oh yeah, of course, Jeff's one of our players. You're like, ha 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 ha, right? <laughs> that's so awesome. <laughs> so we're like, well, what if... That, that's kind of a good idea. What, what if? So I wrote a very nice letter. To hear more about how Travis decided to start Dark Dice, the original soundtrack music he uses to help enhance his show, and how he landed Jeff Goldblum as a character in his show's second season, tune in next week. Quick reminder here to check out Diversity Saves if you've got a second, to see what they're all about, and to find a way to support them if you can. Here's a friendly reminder to rate and review the show and share it with friends and family who play TTRPGs too. New reviews will be read at the end of episodes as a thank you. Thanks to the team at T4C Studios for the help editing and producing this episode. My intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. The Quickfire Chaos music is by Exacat, and the Quickfire Chaos mood music that plays underneath while we're roleplaying is by my buddy Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for more of their great work. And, as always, until next time, roll some Nat 20s for me.